beautiful words in that hymn. Third stanza says, finished all the types and shadows, all of those types and shadows that are pointing ahead to Christ. We've been hearing throughout the book of Job how Job is one of those types and shadows. Jesus said that all of the scriptures point forward to him. And so in Christ, all those types find their fulfillment so that even the death and hell that we sing of in that second line of the third stanza, no more shall awe those who were found in Christ. Uh, Bildad, in what we're about to read from Job chapter 18, will preach a message of hell and death. But for those who are found in Christ, the one to whom Job points, that message need not terrify us. Job chapter 18. Um, Two weeks ago, we heard Job's lament in chapters 16 and 17. Remember where he confessed, especially at the end of chapter 16 and verses uh, 21 and 22, his hope in a heavenly mediator and friend, one who would plead his case with the love and sympathy of a friend and neighbor, of a near kinsman. That was the hope that that, uh, kept Job, even in the midst of his sadness and lament, from throwing in the towel. But now Bildad the Shuhite, his friend, responds in chapter 18, and and really what, what he does is he seeks to deny and silence any such hope, any hope of a mediator. Remember all the way from the, from the beginning, the first speech of Job's friends, Eliphaz, in chapter 5 and in chapter 4, denied that there could be any such mediator. But his friends have continued to deny that, even as Job's hope in a, a mediator continues to grow. So we'll begin reading in Job chapter 18 and see what the message of Bildad is with no mediator. It says, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you put an end to words? Gain understanding, and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road." Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. A brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity 
among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the west are astonished at his day, as those in the east are frightened. Surely, such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Congregation, just a few weeks ago, marked the 281st anniversary of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he preached from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, about the fate of the wicked, who, if they do not repent, will be consumed by the wrath of God, who Edwards described as being one whose bow is bent and his arrow is made ready whose wrath is like great waters that are dammed up for the present that will soon rush forth with great fury when he removes his hand. Edwards describes God's judgment to a spider being held over a fire, dangled by its web and subject to God's judgment once that web breaks. It was a sermon about the terrors of the Lord. And yet a sermon that called its listeners to flee from the wrath to come. And everyone who is out of Christ to come to him and find refuge. It was not a sermon about the tares of the Lord simply for the sake of hellfire and brimstone, but for the sake of magnifying the glory of God in Christ. For the sake of calling those members of the church in Enfield, Connecticut, who had presumed upon God's grace to behold the judgment they deserved if they are outside of Christ and do not know him, and then to come to him. And the sermon ended on Christ. It was a sermon that we also need to read alongside Edward's other sermons on the mercies of God and the delights of God who in his love sent Christ to be our eternal bridegroom who would pour out his love and grace towards us. Edward's sermon is sometimes read out of context as if he were a man obsessed with hellfire and brimstone. But he also loved to preach the delights of the Lord and beauty of God in Christ. Which even in that very sermon were not absent but were, you could say, his motivating factor in preaching God's judgment. And in that sense, even though Bildad the Shuhite in Job chapter 18 seems to preach on many of the same themes that Edwards did in that famous sermon, I'm even using illustrations from nature in much the same way and, and preaching with a rhetorical beauty that rivals it, these two sermons could not be more different. Because the fundamental presupposition and, in fact, conclusion of Edward's sermon was the love and grace of God that are available to all who seek him. But for Bildad, the love and grace of God are nowhere present. And for Edwards, the other presupposition is that he does not know who among his hearers is regenerate and who is not. But for Bildad, he had an audience of one And he presumed to know the fate of that man. These are two very different sermons. Both about the wrath of God, both about the terrors of hell, but one preached in tears with compassion, the other preached in anger with arrogance. To justify himself 
and tear down his friends. To distance himself from the suffering that Job was experiencing by making him feel like he deserved that so that Bildad could feel safe. Bildad begins his sermon of an insult, telling Job in verse 2 that he lacks understanding. He says that he treats his friends, verse 3, as if they are, are dumb. It says in verse 4 that Job is basically engaging in, in all of this lament, all of this complaining to God, is basically engaging in self-harm. He's tearing himself in his anger. It's fruitless. In fact, it's worse than fruitless. It is counterproductive. And so he says to Job, what, do you expect that the earth is going to be forsaken for you? Do you expect that those, those large rocks over there, even the mountains, are going to be removed from their place for you? Do you expect that the whole world is going to be turned upside down and the logic of our proven system is going to be turned inside out for you? You can hear the impatience in his tone. You can sense the anger of this preacher of the law, this upholder of tradition, this one who lacks sympathy and foregoes compassion as he preaches Job into hell in these 21 verses. Bildad is like an angry man on the street corner. The more his listeners protest, the louder he gets. And throughout this chapter, he's basically yelling about two things. Um, First, about the tidy moral world in which he lives. And second about the place of the wicked in this tidy moral world of Bildad's. Let's notice um, in verse 4, Bildad's statement about his tidy world. He says, Shall the earth be forsaken, and shall the rock be removed from its place? Again, these are pictures of stability. Of the earth being the very ground on which they stand, the rock being the mighty, impenetrable forces that cannot be moved. He's saying, Job, the world in which we live is a world in which there are set laws. It's a world where each thing belongs in its place. The rock belongs there, the, the ground belongs there, the righteous belong here, and the wicked over there where you are in the ash heap. God has fixed the world in such a way where the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Remember, that was the point of Bildad's speech back in chapter 8. You can, can go back and read it this afternoon. The wicked suffer and the righteous prosper, no exceptions. And Bildad is saying, by your constant insins- insistence, Job, that you are righteous. By your constant insistence that you are righteous even though you suffer. You are trying to take these set things and move them out of their place. You are trying to rearrange the moral order of the universe. Christopher Ashe says, Bildad inhabits a conceptual universe where everything has its place and everything is in its place. Or if it isn't, we can be sure that it'll soon be put back in its place. Ash says, Bildad and his friends are the moral equivalent to the house-proud person who will not allow things to be put out of place. And they think that Job is like a rude house guest who comes in and wants to trash the place. Maybe you've you've been to someone's house before who every time something is is moved, they have to, to go and hurry and put it back in place. That's Job's friends. And Job is the one doing the rearranging. 
That's what he's doing is he insists that he is a blameless man. That's what he's doing as, as he uh, grasps for hope in, in chapter 9 and chapter 16, hope and a mediator who will lay his hand both on God and also on him, who will plead for him as a man pleads for his friend. So that is, as Job said back in chapter 14, even after he dies, he may live again and God will desire him and will put away his sin and cover it over. That, Bildad says, is to remove the steady laws by which the universe is governed. What their tradition of 8 verse 8 and their fathers of 15 verse 19 have told them. That God gives health and wealth and prosperity to those who serve him and brings immediate judgment on those who don't. This is the tidy world in which Bildad lives. And his anger and impatience in verses 2 and 3 are because Job has tried to question the arrangement of the furniture in this world. The the arrangement of this furniture that Bildad and his friends are uh, convinced is God's arrangement. And so he says, uh, no, Job, the wicked receive God's judgment. Those who do not know God, their place, their dwelling is in darkness and eventually hell. He describes in verses verses, uh, 5 to 21. We see the place of the wicked in Bildad's tidy world. In these 16 or so verses, you can notice uh, several movements in this section of Bildad's speech. We see in verses 5 and 6 this theme of darkness, a theme that has come up often in Job's speeches. Remember, he's, he's, I think, mentioned it at the end of every single one of his speeches so far. It was the overarching theme of of chapter 3. He mentions it again at the end of chapter 7, again at the end of chapter 10. He mentions it in uh, chapters uh, 13 and 14. And then uh, just two weeks ago, when we considered chapters 16 and 17, at the end of that, and I think it's Job 17, 13, he says that he makes his bed in the darkness. The end of Job 17 almost sounds a little bit like Psalm 88, where it says that darkness has become... My closest friend, Job, is, is in something of that place. He's experiencing darkness. And now Bildad says the light of the wicked goes out. His flame, the flame of the wicked, does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp is put out. You see what Bildad is doing? He, he is repeating what Job has just said about his own experience of darkness And he says, the only people who live in such darkness, Job, are the wicked. It's the same thing in in verses 7 to 10 where he speaks of Job being hunted down and trapped by God, his feet put in the stocks. These are the very same images that Job has used in chapter 10 and chapter 13. Abildad has apparently listened to what Job has said about himself. It is now using Job's prayers against him. He has listened to the prayers of this desperate man as he is turning them against him and using them to condemn him. Abildad uses the language of the Psalms of Judgment. He speaks of a snare laying hold of him, his feet walking to a trap, the kind of language we see in, in places like Psalm 140. And he uses this vivid language of judgment to describe Job as a wicked man whose very circumstances in life testify against him. That he is a wicked man. 
And so because he is a wicked man, Bildad says, terrors frighten him on every side. And those terrors that he speaks of in verse 11 are personified in verse 12 where it says its strength is famished. That is the strength of death and terror. Who are so hungry that they are ready at Job's side. The ESV says they are ready for his stumbling. Meaning death and terror are ready for Job to stumble and fall so that he can be devoured. Even as his skin, verse 13, is already being devoured. Again, we see Bildad cruelly using the circumstances of Job's life as an example of how he is suffering the judgment of God. The way that he speaks of his skin being devoured, the way that he speaks of of the shelter of his tent being taken away, even the language of terror that Job has used in chapter 6 and chapter 9. Bildad is taking the circumstances of Job's life and using them against him to describe the judgment that has has, uh, come upon him now in part, but soon will completely consume him. He's saying, Job, the, the, the terrors that you are experiencing are but little foretastes of the hellfire that will soon devour you. He speaks in verse 19 of his dead children, of the wicked man having no posterity. He speaks in verse 15 of brimstone, which is scattered on his dwelling, drawing out his roots and causing his dwelling to wither. It makes us think of that fire from heaven, that brimstone that came down in chapter 1. But this fire and brimstone, this lack of posterity, are ultimately just a little foretaste of what's to come when his memory will perish from the earth, verse 17. He'll be chased out of the world, verse 18, and dwell in a place, verse 21, of those who do not know God. Bildad is describing hell. Bildad is describing the same place Edwards described and the same judgment Edwards warned of for those who don't know God. And what he says about hell is not wrong. In fact, we do well to consider what he says about those who do not know God dwelling in the place of deep darkness. Dwelling in the place of terror and brimstone where their memory will be forgotten. This is part of the Bible's teaching. And maybe some of us here today need to hear it. But where Bildad goes wrong is in applying this biblical teaching to Job. Who God has said three times in Job 1.1 and Job 1.8 and Job 2.3 is a righteous and blameless man who fears God and shuns evil who will again be vindicated by God at the end of the book and proved by God not to be among the wicked, but who in fact does know God as he has shown in his confessions of faith even from the ash heap. The kind of thing that we saw a few weeks ago in in chapter 14, again at the end of, of chapter 16, the kind of thing that we'll see again in chapter 19. Job is a believer. Job is not a man who does not know God. Job's not going to hell. And so Bildad fails in a very, uh, very important part of preaching, rightly applying the truth of God's word. He fails in who he applies it to. He fails in how he applies it in, in terms of his tone. 
And he fails in the incompleteness with which he applies it as he leaves no room for a mediator but consigns Job to hell with no hope of a savior. For that, in build that system, is the place of the wicked who are identified as such by the things they suffer. That's the way that things work in Bildad's tidy world. That's what we have in Job 18. Which God in the end, in chapter 42, will say, misses the mark. As Bildad has not spoken rightly of him, Bildad has not spoken rightly of God and rightly balanced both his, his wrath and judgment, also with his love and grace in providing a mediator. Nor has Bildad rightly understood the case of God's servant Job. That's what God will say. And so what we want to do next then, having seen Bildad's tidy world where the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer the foretaste of hell that Job has suffered. So we want to consider God's undoing of Bildad's tidy world. We cannot read Job 18 outside of the context of the rest of the book where God gives his assessment in chapter 42. And we cannot read Job 18 or or the whole book of Job outside of the context of, of the whole story of redemption where God in Christ will undo Bildad's tidy world. So direct your attention back to verse 4 where Bildad says that as Job tears himself in his anger by maintaining that he is righteous and his suffering is not proof of his sin, that he is seeking to rearrange the things that God has so ordered in this world. That statement he makes in in verse 4, Bildad basically says, it is as if, Job, you were suggesting that the earth for you will be forsaken and the rocks for you will be removed. If it really is the case that a blameless man, which you're maintaining you are, if it really is the case that a blameless man can suffer in the way that you have suffered, Job, can suffer in the way that is described in verses 5 to 20, then the earth might as well be forsaken and the rocks might as well be removed from their place. All that is steady and stable in this world might as well be rent asunder. That's what Bildad is saying in verse 4. But as you think about those words in verse 4, I want you to think about what or, or who we have been saying Job is a type and shadow of. We've been made that point again as, as we sang that song of preparation about all of the types and shadows in the Old Testament. We're pointing forward to Christ. That's the point that we've been making about the book of Job. That Job is God's champion who who God, in that exchange back in chapter 1, holds up in the face of his accuser. That's literally what the Satan means, the accuser. And God is the one who first mentions Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? He brings him up. He is delighted to bring him up. And he holds him up in the face of the accuser as a glorious and righteous one who will be brought low by innocent suffering and yet in that suffering will remain faithful to God and in so doing will silence the accuser. He will, in a sense, crush the serpent and foreshadow his destruction. He will suffer, though not for his own sin. In suffering, he will remain faithful and then he will intercede for others, even his enemies, and finally be exalted to an even greater status than he had before. Twice the number 
of everything that is mentioned in chapter 1, we read of in chapter 42. You see this pattern of glory, suffering, and greater glory. That is the messianic trajectory that we find in the Psalms, we find in the Gospels, we find in the Epistles, we find in the story of Christ, that we find in the story of, of Genesis all the way to Revelation, glory, suffering, and greater glory. Job, in his life, is foreshadowing the greatest story, the story of Christ. And Job's friends who insist that he deserves what has come upon him, they are playing the part of those who will mock the Savior. Those, as it says in in Psalm 69 and Psalm 22, will wag their heads at him and mock him. They're playing the part of his accusers who will then be silenced. As in his suffering, in the suffering of Christ, the earth will indeed be forsaken. The rocks will be removed from their place. That's what we sang of in in number 339. As as we sang, hark the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. See, it rends the rocks asunder, shakes the earth, and veils the sky. Matthew chapter 27 26, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks split. Just before that, it speaks of the darkness that covered the earth as the earth was forsaken as Christ hung on the cross. Beloved, in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the death of Christ, whom Job anticipates the the, the rocks, as Bildad says in verse 4, will literally be removed from their place. The earth will shake, and that which was steady and stable, their whole religious temple system will be turned upside down in the death of that righteous man who is then proclaimed to be God's son and God's champion. The death of Christ, God proved in in forsaking the earth and removing the rock from its place, in tearing the temple curtain from top to bottom, he proved that the suffering of the pains of hell that Christ experienced on the cross were not the proof that he is the sort of wicked man Bildad describes in Job 18. But he is, in fact, an even more righteous man than than God has described in Job chapter 1. And then Job will describe in Job 31. God, in the revelation of his son, will undo Bildad's tidy world. He will undo the tidy world of prosperity theologians and Pharisees and professors of the Christian faith who think that they are owed a life of health and ease if they follow God. Or who look at the suffering of others and conclude that they must have sinned to bring that suffering upon themselves. That they must have done something wrong if their child abandons the faith. They must have done something wrong if their spouse spouse leaves and they they must have done something wrong and not care for themselves if they're suffering um, ill health. God will overturn and, and undo the entire system of the tradition that Bildad and his friends have inherited. A system that some of us have inherited. He will overturn and undo it in the revelation of his son of whom Job's life is a prophetic shadow. A picture 
of the one who will descend into hell for us. As we confess in question answer 44, suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier to deliver us from hellish anguish and torment. Who will descend completely into the hell of Job 18 verses 5 to 21 so that we might be lifted up to heaven though we do not deserve it. Ash says, Job's experience of hell that is described in chapter 18 is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ entering into hell for us on the cross. When he did, the land was cast into supernatural darkness, fulfilling verse 4, the earth forsaken. He felt himself dragged down into the the inescapable punishment of sinners that is described in verses 7 to 10, the insatiable terrors of hell from verses 11 to 14, even the total dissolution of his relationship with his father, worse than what we read of in verses 17 to 19. He endured the terrible separation from this world in public disgrace, and he did it to redeem sinners. He went to hell that we might go to heaven. And because he drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, we will never have to do so. Christ fulfills Job 18 and turns it on its head. He, he undoes the tidy world that Bildad and his friends have constructed and makes it possible for the sort of wicked men that Bildad describes, the, the sort of wicked men that um, Edwards described, to experience not the eternal hell of Job 18, but instead the eternal bliss Revelation 21, where God will be our God and we will be his people and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death and there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, but the former things will have passed away for all who find refuge in the Son. And that, beloved, is what is missing from Bildad's sermon. That is what is missing from Bildad's proclamation of the tears of hell. That's what distinguishes a Jonathan Edwards' sermon from Bildad the Shuhites. That's why one could be used by God to ignite an awakening and one would receive the assessment of Job 19.2, how long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? You have reproached me and wronged me. That'll be Job's assessment in Job 19.2 and it's an assessment that God will agree with in chapter 42. Because Bildad preached the doctrine of hell in isolation from the grace and mercy of God and the mediator that he and his friends have denied. Because he preaches the doctrine of hell without compassion. Because he preaches the doctrine of hell without Christ. This is the difference between sinners in the hands of an angry God and Bildad's singular sinner, Job, in the hands of a graceless God. Edwards ended on the hope of salvation because he understood the glorious mystery of the suffering of the blameless one who descended into hell for us that we might ascend to heaven if we repent of our sins and turn to him. He understood and understood fully that that Christ, the righteous one, bore Job 18 for us so that we who do deserve all that is described in it might instead be exalted like Job will at the end of the book to a place of feasting and riches and glory where his tears will be wiped away and his latter days will be even greater than his former. That is the promise of the gospel. 
that even though each and every sinner, even though each and every one of us deserves the hellfire and brimstone of verse 15, the tares of hell of verse 11, and for our memory, verse 17, to perish from the earth, even though you deserve that and I deserve that, God has made a way for us instead to know his grace and glory if, verse 21, we trust in him. If, verse 21, we know him. And not in the way that Bildad knows him. But if we know him as he has revealed himself in his son as the one who would let the floodwaters of God's wrath be poured out upon who would become that spider dangled over the fire as the web snaps and would enter into the fiery flames and place of darkness for you. That's what the preachers of the Great Awakening preached as they preached about hell. They also preached about the Christ who bore that hell for you if you turn to him in faith and repentance. The righteous one who Job anticipates, who if you know him by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, this fate will not be yours regardless of what you have done and what you deserve. Even if everything, every accusation that, that Bildad and his friends and Eliphaz in chapter 22 will hurl against Job, even if every one of those accusations is true of you, if you are found in him, though this is the judgment that you deserve, Christ will have borne it for you. Though every one of us deserves the hellfire and wrath this passage describes, God has provided a refuge in his Son. And this passage, as we understand it in the context of the whole book, and in the context of the whole Bible, is calling us to behold the hell that we deserve and then look further yet and behold the Christ who bore it for us and come to him in faith and repentance with hearts of thanksgiving. And for those of us who've already done this, It is calling us not to preach this message isolated from the grace of God in Christ, nor without compassion to a world around us that is perishing, but to warn those around us of all that that, that we too deserve outside of Jesus Christ. And to summon them, even as Edwards did in that famous sermon, to let everyone who is outside of Christ now awake and flee from the wrath to come and come to Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ who bore the hell that we deserve. Who in those three hours on the cross where the earth was forsaken and covered in darkness, the rocks split and the earthquake in those three hours and in his suffering also earlier suffered the judgment that is described in this passage. So that even though we deserve it, We might never have to bear it. Not because we have lived pious lives like Bildad insists, but if we turn to Christ, if we look to him, the innocent sufferer whom Job foreshadowed, and if we hide ourselves in him as our only refuge. Father, it is our earnest prayer that any who are gathered here today or or any who are, are listening here today or will hear this message any who have not done that, have not fled to the one in whom refuge is found, the only one in whom refuge is found, that any who are gathered here today with us, that they would. 
uh, that you would help us as a church to rightly balance the delights of Christ and his judgment in the way that a man like Edwards did. The way that Christ does in the Gospels. Neither ignoring the terrors of hell nor isolating them from the mercy that is provided in Christ, our gentle and lowly Savior. Lord, we pray for your church in every place as she heralds this message, both sides of it. That you would bless the proclamation of that message and that through it you would draw men everywhere, all men everywhere, to repentance and to salvation. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.